I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at season three of the Netflix documentary series, Crime Scene, The Texas Killing Fields. And their, their kid was outside playing in the yard and their dog ran off into the woods. And a little while later, it came back and it had something round in its mouth and they thought it had found a ball out there. So they went out to investigate. In the dog's mouth was a human skull. Today, we're talking to director Jessica DeMock. Between 1986 and 1991, the remains of four missing women were discovered in the same field in League City, Texas. Authorities couldn't rule out the deaths were connected to a string of 30 murders outside of Houston since the 1970s. Then, another string of disappearances began in the mid-90s. Were all of these crimes linked in some way? And what is their connection to that secluded plot of land on Calder Road? Why do you think so many people are looking I don't give a damn. I I mean, I got everything I need to prove that I'm innocent. Nothing links me to anything. And I'm joined now by director Jessica DeMock. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Hi, thanks for having me. So this series looks at particular locations linked to serious crimes. And the so-called killing fields are just one small place. We're really looking at a long stretch of highway over several decades in your series. Can you tell me a little bit about the I-45 corridor? Yeah, sure. So, and and the way that you framed it is exactly right. The Texas Killing Fields is um, a field in Galveston County and Calder Road, where in the 80s, there were four bodies that were found. But the kind of history, once we started looking into these four unsolved cases, is that going all the way back to this 1970s, there was a group of 13 women who had been murdered down in Galveston. And then stretching on into the 90s, there were additional murders that kind of happened along that corridor. Um, And it's really these four missing women um, in the 80s that are at the heart, but very much within the context of these other murders as well. Now, it's, it's implied in your documentary that the growth of the oil business in the Space Center really attracted all these different kinds of people to Houston and that this in some way played a part in the events that that happened there. Do you think that there's something to that? Or is this just sort of like community people talking about lots of outsiders coming to the place that they are from? No, I think that there is something to it. It's certainly not to say that like anyone that came in was from a kind of undesirable community or anything like that. It's more that you have this kind of quick growth and with that quick growth, you don't have a strong sense of like who your neighbors are and a kind of historical community. So you've got suburbs popping up. You need lots of 
workers. Um, there's lots of kind of like just day labor. There are lots of people coming in and out for quick projects. And there are also a lot of people that are not necessarily from the area and just kind of use the highway to get to a location and then use that same highway to get right out. And I think it's that kind of breed, you know, it creates a somewhat of a breeding ground for potential. So I want to talk about a, a central character in your series, Tim Miller. I think that he'd say he channeled his grief into something good in the way that he sort of lives his life and is seeking justice for the killer of his daughter and all of his searches that he does on behalf of other families. But at other times, it sort of led him to some dark places, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's very understandable that in the wake of the tremendous grief, he has through the years gone to some very dark places. I can't tell you how many times I searched this property and just hoping I could find Laura's clothes or Laura's little necklace. I would go out there during lunchtime. I'd go out at night. I was out there at the middle of the night screaming at the top of my lungs. I said, I'm out here. Come and get me, you coward. I shot six times in the ground. Hopefully somebody would call the police. Nobody came. Nobody came. It has led to, you know, and he, he would talk about this openly. I think it has led to years of substance abuse. It has led to years of deep depression, hospitalizations, things like that, which I think is probably the most understandable part of it. I think his ability to kind of transcend that and get to a place where he can still search for answers. And if he can't find answers for himself, try to find answers for other family members that he can relate to, I think is really the kind of thing that makes him so unique. I mean, he is now a man in his 70s and and kind of continues to fight the good fight for both his daughter and, and for other victims out there. One of the things that really struck me is, you know, he's a very intense guy and he's, ex of course, extremely emotional when talking about his daughter, which you cannot blame him for. Your recreations of these scenes, especially of these young women, are so sensitive and well done. I mean, you know, we sort of hear that there were rumors that his daughter, Laura, had been running with a rough crowd. There's a reason why that they why they moved so she could sort of have this like fresh start in this new school. You're thinking, I'm sure, as you're talking with him, like, how am I going to visualize this, right? What is that like as a director? Yeah, no, it's a really, it's totally true. I mean, I think one of the things that happened and the theme that we often heard about was this idea that like these young girls, if they were doing any kind of behavior that could be considered like risky or, you know, somewhat questionable, that there was this kind of dark cloud over the character and the police took the crimes less seriously, took them missing less seriously. And I think that that's so unfortunate. And so I, I didn't even really want to touch any of the kind of like running with the wrong crowd. And also because who hasn't? Like I was a teenager. Yep. I did all types of crazy things that I would not do as an adult woman, as a teenager. So many things. All That is what teenagers do. And so I really felt like it was important to not like give an image to any of that because that is not why she gets murdered. No one should get murdered because they're smoking weed with like the cute boy down the street. That's just not a reason. And also we don't know what happened. You know, we don't know what the actual crime scene was. We don't know what the actual murder that took place, you know, how it exactly unfolded. What we do know is that there's this kind of last moment that people can account for these victims. 
with Laura Smither, with Laura Miller, with Heidi. And so what I really wanted to do was look at these last moments. You know, we know she was at a payphone making a phone call to her boyfriend. And if we could kind of like slow down that moment in time and be like, that's the last thing that we know. That's the only thing that we have left to grasp. And then after that, it's very kind of unclear what happened. And so to me as a director, it felt important to like really kind of draw that moment out. A, because it felt emotionally accurate with this type of story, but also like just from a directing standpoint, I don't have a lot of material to work with otherwise as well. Like I can't really recreate the murder scene. I can't recreate what happened. I don't know what happened. This was the thing that I could kind of do. And so I wanted to make it as beautiful as possible. So I want to ask you about Clyde Hedrick. The Ellen Beeson case, he actually drove Ellen's friend to her body I still struggle to understand. I mean, I do understand, first of all, why she didn't go to the police immediately because she was probably terrified. I still don't quite understand why he would do that, why he would take her friend to this victim's body, because he is now inexorably and forever tying himself to this crime. Yeah, I think there's a few things. One, I think he's not a very smart guy. Yeah. And so I think sometimes his actions are kind of hard to understand because they don't seem smart and it, there's a good chance that they just might not be. Um, but I also think that he was trying to send a message by showing the body, which was, you know, what he wasn't thinking about was that there was now kind of a link to this, to Ellen Beeson. I think what he was trying to do was say, I'm fully capable of being this violent and this aggressive. And if you don't watch it, I'll do the same to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to ask about Marla, too, who was Clyde's stepdaughter. Her stories through the course of your series get more and more harrowing, her stories about Clyde. Yet, as a viewer, she becomes stronger and stronger and stronger as a person. Like, that's the perception, at least, that I have of her as a viewer. Was that your experience with her when you were speaking with her? Absolutely. I mean, I think when we were starting this project and we were thinking about, you know, the cast of characters, she was obviously in there because she had an important story to tell. But I really started to think of her as very central to this. She is really trying to dig up and access memories and very, very painful and horrible and dark memories. And I think, honestly, with the amount of trauma that she's endured Memories that she would just as soon forget and move on from. They could have arrested him. I, I could have testified about all the things that he was doing. Nobody did anything. And I think the only reason she's willing to kind of dive back in and touch that pain is because she thinks that there might be a real purpose there. And she thinks that if she just thinks about it hard enough, and if she just can see it a little bit more clearly, she might have kind of a missing piece to the puzzle. And not necessarily the key that unlocks the entire thing, but a piece of the puzzle, which in a case like this might be all that's needed. And so I think that she becomes kind of more and more determined as we spend time with her to really try to access her memories and also how they can connect to these other stories because you know for from her experience and for her perspective she was the victim of abuse but it kind of 
never went beyond her own personal boundaries until it did. I do want to ask you about, because you talked about the cast of characters you were thinking about including in your story, and you really have tremendous access here. I was really impressed with uh, the group of journalists that you assembled for this documentary. I mean, you'd skip Hollinsworth here. For those who don't know, he writes for the Texas Monthly, incredibly well-regarded journalist. The League City Police Department writes an affidavit that goes public that Robert Abel, the NASA scientist could actually be a sexual serial killer who had done these killings to these four young women in the killing fields next to his trail ride business. You have an author, you have Lisa Olson, who's also an investigative reporter, right? Why was it important to you to have so many journalistic voices here? Partially because, and I have to really give credit to, you know, we had an incredible showrunner, Leslie Mattingly, and she had done so much research and had really spent years on understanding the story. And it was really through her that we got this incredible access. But it's also that like, you know, these journalists are the experts. So, you know, they are the ones that can kind of speak to this for the longest amount of time and the proximity and they kind of know the cultural context, which in a show like Crime Scene is so much a part of what we're trying to do. But also they're fantastic storytellers. And in something like this, where you have so many missing pieces and there are these kind of holes, you really need someone to kind of say like, pull up and get close to this campfire as I like bring you in and tell you this tale. Mm -hmm. And we try to kind of use those voices, not so much as experts, but as like part of our storytelling and part of the voice that could help us understand what all of this means. Mm. And of course, you also have Richard Renison, the FBI agent who's working the case. Of what some voices that you don't have, though, are the League City Police Department who did not participate in the documentary. Um, why do you think that they didn't want to speak with you? I mean, I was not surprised at all. When I was one of the members of the team that really wasn't surprised when they decided not to speak with us. And I was truthfully kind of fine with it. I think that they don't want us, didn't want to participate. Um, because they don't have anything to add. They did a really bad job preserving evidence. They did a really bad job communicating with the victims' families. They did a really bad job when it comes to even just like abusing families. I mean, when you think about the kind of torment that it must be to lose a daughter or someone you love, and then on top of that to be insulted disregarded, dismissed by the very people that are supposed to be helping you. I think that they did kind of every step of the way where they could have made a mistake, both on an emotional and on a procedural level, they did so. And so I don't think they really have anything to add. And truthfully, I'm not really interested in anything that Mm. they have to say. Yeah, yeah. So Robert Abel was in the frame for the Calder Road killings for a really long time, uh, including by Tim Miller, by the way, who suspected him of, of being the killer. Can you talk about why people were so convinced that he was the one? There's a few reasons. One is that they did get an FBI profiler involved and the profile came back. And, you know, these are people that really know what they're doing and said that the killer might have a couple of characteristics. 
They might be highly intelligent, show abuse towards women or animals, live a life of isolation, keep trophies, insert themselves into the case and kind of keep close proximity. These were all characteristics that the FBI thought the suspect could possibly have. And then you have got this guy, Robert Abel, who lives right on the periphery of the property. It basically happens on his property. He has several ex-girlfriends and ex-wives come forward and say that he had been abusive towards them. He had been known to perhaps be abusive to animals. He had kept newspaper clippings and things like that from the cases. And and he was this revered NASA scientist who had been part of the team that got the first astronauts to the moon. And so he was like, you know, he in a lot of ways fit the profile. So I can imagine that it was hard to not consider him. And it was amazing. I mean, talk about inserting yourself. He gave Skip a tour of the scene, which was an incredible moment. So Tim Miller, I mean, he talks about how he tormented him. And your documentary covers that. A lot of his frustration and grief got channeled into this kind of vengeance toward Abel. And he decided he was going to torment Abel. Then he would call him, leave voicemails. I had a person that was going to come out there and take you to Las Vegas and beat your ass all the way up there and kill you. But then later he reconciled with him and apologized. What was it like talking to Tim about that? Because he seems still really haunted by that. Yeah, I think Tim is really haunted by that. I think Tim, you know, Robert Abel goes on to kill himself. And I think Tim feels, if not responsible or partially responsible for him taking his own life, which I certainly don't hold Tim responsible for that. I think he does understand that there was an air and a cloud of suspicion that hung over Abel for a lot of his life. And that that was one of the many factors that led to him deciding to take his own life. And I think that Tim feels very strongly that he he was wrong. You know, I personally think Tim did what any loving father would do. And I'm not totally convinced that Abel didn't have something to do with it. I, you know, it's, it's hard to see the similarities and not have some suspicion. Tim is much more of a kind of he has more of a like a laser focus when he sets his sight on an idea. When he has a theory, he really, really goes after that theory. So I think for a while, Abel was his theory. And then when Abel wasn't his theory, it was no longer his theory at all. Mm. You know, I think that potentially there's more gray area. I think maybe Abel knew something, wasn't involved, but like knew about it. Maybe Abel saw something that concerned him. And he didn't speak up about it. And he does like ha- had some information that he never came forward with. And that plagued him. You know, someone doesn't necessarily end their life because they've killed someone. If anything, I think that's one of the things that points to some innocence. But they might be plagued by the idea of, oh, I did always see this guy. Or I did tell this one contractor of mine that he could dump his materials here. Maybe, you know, th- I can imagine that there's some kind of gray area in there. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about Laura Smither. Of course, she's one of the victims that happens in the set of killings that takes place in the 90s. One thing that struck me about her case is how relatively quickly her body was found compared to some of the other victims. 
Her parents were so, so activated, of course, in part. I mean, she was 12. But also this was Friendswood. And you point out this was a more affluent community. Is this part of the reason why you think there was so much activation around this case? Why there was so much response? Why, for instance, you know, the school, of course, there was, you know, DNA technology at the time. But also they did these fingerprint kits in the school system. It just seemed to be one of these cases that really, like, got the whole town's attention. Yeah, I think so. And I think the way to think about it is that Laura got the treatment that everyone should have gotten. Mm. It's not so much that like, oh, they paid attention to Laura and they, because she was affluent, because she was younger, because she was, you know, this like very good girl and there was nothing that they could possibly point to. It's more that in the absence of anything that you could possibly say about this young victim. Like, what could you possibly point to as any kind of reason, right? When you take those things away, what you have is an outpouring of support and urgency and activation and uh, just a really robust response. And what it makes me think of is like, if you remove some of those prejudices away from the case, you have it in its pure form, which is like how people should act. And what it shows is that if you had removed some of the prejudice from those other cases, I think the response would have been the same. It's not, and I'm certainly not saying that you're saying this, but it's, I try to think of it not as like, oh, Laura got so much attention and these other girls didn't. It's like, Laura got the attention that these other victims should have had as well. Right. You know, when someone goes missing, this is what we should do. We should look everywhere for them. We should absolutely call in help. We should create a kind of network of information. And when you start kind of saying, well, it's because of this and this and this, that feeling gets tainted. Mm. And it, it really strikes me, too, this in this era, too, once again, these people are all kind of bound together. This is the era where Kellyanne Cox and Jessica Kane go missing. We hear that Tim Miller is asked to join in the search for Jessica. Gay Smither and Marla also join in it. It's like, it's like the people are bound together yeah. by these like horrible set of circumstances. And the fact that these are the ties that bind them is like this unbelievable tragedy, but they're all sort of helping each other, too. It's incredibly yeah. moving. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, one, there's this kind of built-in sympathy and empathy that they all have for one another, which is the most awful club I can imagine being a part of. They have membership to like the most awful group that you can imagine. And with that comes some level of empathy, understanding, and also some level of expertise about what is really needed. So in 1997, police get a huge break in the second set of cases when a woman named Sandra Sapow calls the police. She says she was abducted and escaped from a moving truck. And the only thing I was thinking, like, he's going to kill me. I'd rather jump and kill myself than him doing what he was going to do. So I jumped. And then she IDs a man named William Reese. And I'm wondering if you could talk about him, because frankly, when I first saw that sketch, I was like, oh, that's that's Clyde Hendrick. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Absolutely. I mean, he's kind of this Southern boy, plays kind of stupid, chummy, blue collar, kind of every man's man who just plays up the like, I'm just a 
country boy, leave me alone. But, you know, under that facade is a really evil predator who was mostly just opportunistic in his violent behavior, just saw opportunities to inflict violence. And it kind of could have been anyone at any time and tragically altered the course of many people's lives. Yeah. In 2012, Ellen Beeson's body was exhumed. Clyde Hedrick is confronted with new evidence that that shows she was murdered with trauma to her head. Was it just the fact that there was evidence of a crime itself that gave authorities enough to charge him? It wasn't clear from that interview scene what it was, because he still seemed like he was playing this game of like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think that the kind of shadow of the Calder Road murders still being unsolved and knowing that at this exact era, it was also a young woman who had some overlap, could be connected to the Texas moon. The fact that here was this death that had not been more fully examined and that there was a possibility that, wait, you know, this might be part of the missing piece or this might be one of the missing pieces to this very perplexing puzzle, I think was part of the motivation to say, wait a second. And I think also just, you know, a new set of eyes looking at it just said like, this doesn't make sense. You've got this man who all he's been accused of is the abuse of a corpse. Yeah. He's out, you know, it's just like, what exactly is the story here? What exactly happened? And and it's really through, I mean, it's, it's through a few things. It's from reexamining the body, but it's also through gaps in his own story. Clyde Hedricks at one point says, you know, he and Ellen had gone skinny dipping and then he went back into his truck to roll a joint and he's looking out at the water and Ellen Beeson, he sees floating at the top and she had drowned. And, you know, the prosecutor realized that when someone drowns, they don't float to the surface right away. It's really the release of gases that accumulate in the body that bring them up to the surface. But initially when people drown, they, they submerge. Otherwise you would just, you'd be on the surface and you'd be breathing that air. And so realizing also in the holes of, in his story that something wasn't adding up. One of the things that no doubt has enraged every viewer that's watched your series is that Clyde was let out of jail after eight years in a state that is certainly not known for its lenient criminal justice system, Texas. It seemed like it was some sort of automatic release, some sort of technicality. How shocked were you when you got to that part of the story? Absolutely. So shocked. I mean, it was really this thing that had, it was this kind of antiquated part of the penal code that unfortunately was about the year of the crime and not the year of the conviction. And so because it was in place when the crime occurred, he was let out on this kind of technicality. And the idea that A, he had gone free for so long and they had finally come around and got him. And then through this set of circumstances to find that he was then released after only eight years, it just feels like they can't kind of get ahead on this one. They can't really catch a break. 
Now, I have a kind of a complicated question for you because that press conference that took place across the street, it was incredibly moving, you know, that across the street from where Clyde was after being released. It it was incredibly moving, but it also strikes me as a little bit of a slippery slope. I mean, it's one thing for me to hear Marla speak directly to Clyde. We know that he abused her and she endured horrible things at his hands. I was talking to the public and I was talking to Clyde. Just because you were not convicted of other crimes does not mean you did not commit them. But Clyde wasn't actually convicted of any of the other crimes that these families are directly accusing him of doing on camera. And yeah. that, that is kind of a difficult situation. You know, I'm, I'm sure for you chronicling it, did, did you have mixed feelings about that? I did. You know, it's it's also like, you know, I think that there is a lot of reason to believe that the common denominators between these cases and the fact that he knew some of the victims, that he lived near some of the victims, that people can place him with some of the victims is really compelling. That being said, I am not an investigator. I am not part of law enforcement. And I recognize that like, you know, until there is definitive proof that can work through the legal system that like it is still a question mark. We seem to have some answers about the 1980 murders connected to Calder Road, maybe, and the 1990 murders, at least some of them. But we do hear Tim Miller say something really stunning in this final episode when he realizes that Reese couldn't have been connected to that first set of deaths, especially his daughter Laura's, because he was in prison at the time. And the viewer at that point realizes that there were at least two serial killers operating in this short period of time. And then as you sort of zoom out and you realize how many killings that we've heard about in your series, we're talking probably about multiple, multiple killers. Yeah. What is it? Do you think we'll ever have answers about what was happening in this part of the world in, in this period of time? You know, I think it's really at the heart of what we were trying to do, which was, you know, definitely look at these at the heart of it. It's these four on Calder Road and then the ones that happen after that seems like, oh, my God, this person has come back and doing it again. And it turns out to be separate people. But I think it's also by kind of, like you said, zooming out and looking at 13 young women in the 1970s. It's really looking at how this place can be a kind of contributor to these sets of crimes, some by just the factors and some by a lack of accountability. So everything that you have from like, you've got this highway that connects Houston to Galveston, but it's also kind of like the end of the road. You've got that highway that like starts in Houston and basically goes down into the ocean and it is a way for people to kind of quickly get on and get off that there are these little communities that pop up all alongside but for a criminal it's just a way to easily access these areas and then get the hell out and they're untraceable it's also that you've got these like small towns that pop up as a result of economic growth well with these small towns comes different jurisdictions and a lack of communication between these jurisdictions. And so they're not sharing information at these critical junctures. And then you've also got environmental factors where it's like Southern Texas is a place that gets hit with a lot of weather. You've got hurricanes, you've got flooding, you've got torrential rains, and that destroys evidence and it makes it easy to get away with. But it's also criminals know that it destroys evidence. Criminals understand that if they dispose of a body in water, there are 
degrading qualities to the water and that they can get away with it. If they put a body in water, it might move or migrate to another area. And so I think that there are a lot of factors that kind of culminate in this area that has been hit with what looks like probably at least three serial killers kind of all operating in the same territory. And I think most importantly, the fact that no one ever kind of gets caught. And so it becomes like an open invitation. Final question. At the end, FBI agent Richard Renison says he's nearing retirement. He begs viewers of your series to help solve the unsolved cases. If you have information about any of these four victims, please reach out to the FBI. You can remain anonymous. I retire in about a year and a half from now. So I've got some work to do. Do you have hope that your documentary will help make a difference for his pursuit of justice and for justice for these families? I I think that there is definitely hope there. And also that just like the amount of dedication that Nina still has, that Tim still has, that Marla still has in kind of not letting this rest But I also think that there's just some lessons about, you know, making sure moving into the future, we do listen to families when they're concerned, that we do share resources and information across kind of county lines to make sure that when someone is missing and that we don't, you know, see a human life as less valuable because of any kind of characteristics or labels that we can put on the victims. Well, Jessica DeMock, it's a compelling and fascinating watch. It's crime scene, the Texas killing fields. And listeners, if you haven't watched it yet, go do it right away. Thank you so much for talking to me about it, Jessica. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Jessica DeMock. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review the show and share it with your friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to subscribe to the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>